Welcome, Joy. I just promoted you to a panelist. Okay, so uh, welcome, everyone. It is at eight o'clock uh, Eastern time. Um, we really are so happy to welcome you to Drisha's um, Eluzman classes and the first class in this session on forgiveness in uh, Judaism and in philosophy. We encourage everyone to turn on your video if you are able to, we would love to see you. And feel free to ask questions or comment by writing in the chat box here on Zoom or as a comment on Facebook if you're watching us uh, live right there. This class explores forgiveness, what it is and why we should forgive. Over the course of three sessions, we'll consider three different conceptions of forgiveness and its place in our lives. First, we look at forgiveness as a kind of um, quasi-legal mechanism, a way of wiping clean a cosmic slate marred by wrongdoing. Second, we'll look at forgiveness as, essentially, as an essentially emotional phenomenon. To forgive is to give up the anger towards the wrongdoer, removing potential obstacles to one's own healing. And third, we look at forgiveness as a kind of tool, a power we have to reshape relationships in the wake of wrongdoings. In the course of considering these three conceptions of forgiveness in Jewish and philosophical texts, we'll see that each is a kind of a window, not only into the conception of a central Jewish practice, but into the human condition. It's my pleasure to introduce Professor Queen White and Rabbanit Lasarna. Uh, this will be their first time teaching together, I believe. Very exciting. Um, Professor, Professor White received his BA from Yale and his PhD from MIT. He began his positions as assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at UNL in 2020. His research centers on love and our personal relationships, both of which he argues deserve a central place in our ethical thoughts. His papers explore questions of honesty and discretion, a secular understanding of the love commandments as a basis for morality, the justification of partiality, <laughs> forgive me for pronunciation, partiality, partiality, sorry, Israeli, the nature of forgiveness and the ethic of paying it forward. Professor White and Rabbi Nitzarna have been dear friends since the first days of their freshman year of college. So very exciting to have you both together and I'll turn it uh, to both of you. Thanks. Um, and if people could, we really um, would love to see people's faces. So if you can rejoin as panelists and show and uh, turn on your video, that would be really wonderful. Though, of course, we're glad to have you here in whatever way you can, uh, you can show up. And throughout, we'll be asking you all questions and also inviting questions throughout. Um, if, if you have a question at any point or if you want to contribute, or at least in as much as the webinar allows it, you can raise your hand or always use the chat. Um, the chat function. And we'll be monitoring that and definitely want to have this be like as much a normal class as possible where we're all talking with one another, not on broadcast mode. Um, so should I uh, just get us started? All right, great. So um, I want to start off by trying to locate what we might think of as our central phenomenon, what we're going to be interested in over the next three sessions. Like what is this forgiveness thing that we're talking about? Um, and one, I think, helpful way to zero in on our topic is to consider some of forgiveness's relatives. So uh, one thing that seems right about forgiveness is it's something that we do in the wake of a wrong, when one person has wronged another, and the wronged person has an opportunity to forgive in some way to maybe 
let the person off the hook who did some wrongdoing. But there are a lot of sort of related ways of very crudely speaking, letting someone off the hook that seem to be importantly different from forgiveness. So here, here are three. Um, and we're gonna be using the, uh, we're going off of a handout throughout. So make sure you have that handout open. Um, we won't be sharing our screen. So one, imagine say uh, you're a, you own a, a corner grocery shop or something like that. And I uh, steal food from your shop. And one thing you might do in terms of like letting me off the hook is maybe you might justify my theft. Maybe you might say something or someone else might say something to you like, look, you know, he has a family, he's out of money, he's starving, this was the only way to make it through the week. And if you were to offer something of a justification, it's sort of taking what at first seemed like a wrong and saying, look, you know, for the most part, things like that are wrong, but actually in this case, it wasn't wrong. There's some justification for doing it. That immediately feels different from something like, I forgive you for what you've done. Another thing you might do is say, excuse my action. So again, let's suppose that I, I'm this person who's stolen from your, from your shop. Um, maybe like you might find out something about me that makes sense of my behavior. It doesn't justify it, but in some way tells against, you know, blaming me too harshly. Like maybe I was really badly raised or maybe I'm addicted to opioids or I was on, you know, I was drunk or something like that. These might be considerations that they don't make what I did right in the way that say trying to save my kids by stealing might, might make it right but they mitigate the wrong. Again, that feels different from, from, from forgiveness. It's one thing to say something like, look, you know, he just didn't know what he was doing or he was mistaken or he was drunk. It's another thing to say, I forgive you. A third sort of thing that you might sort of have in this vicinity is what's sometimes called condonation, where you can condoning an action, where that's something basically just like, you know, thinking, I'm just going to let this be. I'm not going to engage with it. I'm not going to sort of hold someone to account where, you know, sometimes there are sort of funny philosophy papers about this, where it seems like the central example for condemnation is always like a mother-in-law is being invasive. And, you know, you just decide, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put up a fight. Where here, condoning behavior is in some way just letting it go. But again, that feels really different. Like imagine, you know, your mother-in-law has been horrifically rude to you in some way or another. It's one thing to forgive your mother-in-law. That actually might be a sort of difficult thing to pull off. Um, it's another thing to just let the behavior go. So what, what is this extra thing that's involved in, in forgiveness? And for one, you know, actually the mother-in-law case kind of raises an, an interesting question. Why might it actually be delicate to use words like, oh, I forgive you for what you said, as opposed to just letting it go? Well, one thing that seems to be crucial to forgiveness is a sort of presupposition that the person has done wrong. That's why justification seems to be sort of playing in a different ballpark. And that's why it actually can be quite delicate to say something like, I forgive you, because that's a way of, you know, among other things, pointing out, taking, taking for granted that the person has done wrong. But it seems like there's a lot more to forgiveness than just some kind of presupposition that you've done wrong. Um, so one of the central questions that uh, we're gonna ask is what forgiveness is. Very, very roughly, I wanna kind of start off with thinking of what it feels like to forgive. So imagine, you know, just think, think to a time that, you've, that you actually have forgiven someone. One of the sort of the, the phenomenology of forgiveness seems to be something like letting go. 
there's some distinctive way in which in the wake of wrongdoing, the forgiver lets the wrong go, not by justifying it, not by excusing it, not just by condoning it. There's some, something special that's happening, but there is this kind of feeling of letting go. And so the way I wanna set up the question and today is gonna to sort of offer one answer to this question is what is it that we're letting go of when we forgive? And related to that, why do it? And I mean this in, in two senses. One is a kind of um, particular sense and like in, in a given case, what reasons do we have to forgive someone? What reason do you have to forgive your mother-in-law or what reason would you, might you have to forgive uh, me for stealing food from you? And I also mean this more broadly, like what, what role does this, this practice play in our lives, both interpersonally and in a relationship with God? And so we're gonna consider over the course of three sessions, three approaches. And I wanna just flag off, off, uh, off the bat that these aren't, um, these should be, should be seen as not necessarily mutually exclusive. They're gonna be, these are, these are kind of families of views or, or ways of thinking about forgiveness. They're gonna be lots of different people who disagree about lots of things, but might fall into one camp. And our interest in this is not gonna be sort of adjudicating which one is right or wrong. Um, but kind of trying to, to get in view three different perspectives on this practice, forgiveness, um, and see what sort of they can teach us about, about our lives. And these three views, the first of which we'll be talking about today, is one is a kind of legalistic approach. A second is a sentimentalist approach, where by sentiment, by sentimentalist, I mean having to do with some kind of distinctive sentiments, moral sentiments in particular, like anger or resentment. Um, and the third, um, which has no uh, nice name, um, is sort of seeing forgiveness as a kind of tool for shaping our relationships. Um, so I'm gonna pass it back um, to Leah uh, to talk about the first of the texts that we have on our handout. So again, if you don't have your, the handout up, it's been posted in the chat and definitely um, bring it up so that we can, have, we can be looking at this passage together. Yeah, um, so this is a really amazing passage from the Gemara from the Bavli in Masachet Yoma. And before we look at the passage, we have to think to ourselves, you know, what, what is kind of the opposite of forgiveness? So Quinn just laid out kind of what forgiveness is not. So forgiveness is not justification, excuse, condemnation. But so that's, that's all kind of maybe like neutral compared to the opposite of forgiveness, which I think we could maybe posit is vengeance, bearing a grudge. Those are things that maybe are the opposite of forgiveness. And the Gemara here does this amazing thing where it lays out, you know, actually there's a time for vengeance and there's a time for bearing a grudge. So the, the Gemara says in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, Mishum, Rabbi Shimon ben Yehudzadak, kol tamir chacham she'eno nokim venoter kenachash any Torah scholar who does not avenge himself and bear a grudge like a snake when insulted is not considered a Torah scholar. So, and obviously you want to be a Torah scholar, which means that an attribute of a Torah scholar is that, and a good attribute is an attribute of someone who is vengeful and holds a grudge. And then the Gemara obviously responds, Hold up, there's a verse in the Torah that says, right? There's a verse in the Torah that says, don't take vengeance and don't bear a grudge. And so then there's like a discussion back and forth. Well, maybe that's only talking about money, maybe that's only talking about objects. This is talking about um, this is talking about um emotions. Um 
And then, right, so maybe it's about, and then, and then the Gemara goes on to say, okay, well, maybe it's about Tara de Gufa. It's about, it's about like your own tsar, your own personal um, anguish. Gufa here, it could, sometimes Gufa means body, but I think here it means like of your of yourself, tsar of yourself. Um, but obviously it could be, I mean, I didn't give you the whole like ellipsis there in between, so there, there are, are some interpretive possibilities, but um, we're gonna like jump over that for now. Um, and, and then the, the Gemara says, hold on, like, are you, are you really supposed to take vengeance for or hold grudges about personal anguish don't we have a brighter that says it's taught in a brighter so in earlier tanaitic material those who are insulted but don't insult others who hear themselves being shamed but don't respond who act out of love for god who remain happy in their suffering about them, the verse states, they that love him, they that love God, be as the sun when it goes forth in its might. Meaning it's really good to like turn the other cheek, which I always want to remind people is a verse from Lamentations, not from the New Testament originally. <laughs> and um, and um, right, that, 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 so this Brenta seems to, seems to be really in favor of, you know, just like take it in, don't hold a grudge, don't avenge. So here's the Gemara really pushing back on that original statement by Rabbi Yochanan. Um, but then it, Rabbi Yochanan is like the hero of the Gemara, right? So we're never just gonna leave it as like, oh yeah, Rabbi Yochanan was wrong. Rabbi Yochanan kind of always has to be right. So what do we, what do we say about Rabbi Yochanan? Oh, well, that Breita, we say in defense of Rabbi Yochanan, that Breita, that's really just talking about someone who actually um, does something in their vengeance. Like, you're not supposed to do anything about it, but you can still hold it. The lands are not get way believe. Um, the prohibition against taking vengeance um, applies, but you have to keep it in your heart, right? So the Gemara defends Rabbi Yochanan and says, you're just not allowed to do anything about it. And what the Breita is telling you is that you're not allowed to do anything. And then we say, hold on, but we have another statement by Rava, Amar Rava, Kula Ma'avir Al-Midotav, Ma'avirilo Al-Kopeshaav. Didn't Rava say, whoever foregoes his reckonings with others for injustices done to him, the heavenly court in turn foregoes punishment for his sins too. So if you kind of release other people's responsibility from their wrongs towards you, then God will release kind of your responsibilities towards your wrongs towards God. So we're going to hold those two dynamics of like interpersonal sins and sins between humans and God. That's going to be obviously a big theme um, that we'll see in a moment um, in, in Maimonides particularly bring up. Um, but here Rava is actually suggesting that there's a relationship between them. If I show, um, if I show what we might sometimes call Rahmanut, like mercy um, to other people, then God will be merciful. Um, potentially God will be merciful with me. That's a, that's like a theology put forward by Rava, which means, right, that like, if I want God to not hold grudges or be vengeful vis-a-vis -vis me, then I should probably not hold grudges and not be vengeful vis-a-vis -vis other people. And then Gemara says, the That only applies, Rava's position only applies if they did something called piyus. Um, piyus is a little bit of a hard word to translate, and we're going to see it again and again in Jewish sources about this. It means that someone, a night, a, a, the best beginning of a transition would be to appease, that someone came and tried to appease, and then you were 
appeased. And that's when Rabbah's situation would apply. But if someone, so just to like dig into that language a little bit about appeasement, someone who tries to appease. So a, an interpretive question we're going to have, obviously, is can that be really translated as forgiveness or so or, or apologizing and the attempt to appease is that an apology and then when i am when i am appeased is that forgiveness right so someone attempts to appease when i have been appeased is that a situation of an apology and forgiveness that's like an interpretive question of like what the project that quinn and i are trying to do like are we just kind of like forcing our own terms onto this text in a way that's not totally um there, that's that's like a, an interpretive question I wanted to like raise up as we're looking at Jewish texts about these terms um by and, and just like kind of be honest about that like obviously forgiveness is an English word um, and we're digging into its English meaning and obviously our texts are not written in English and and so there the, the words just have like different resonances um but we're gonna kind of do our best with a category of ideas that that like feel really relevant anyways um but what I also wanted to lift up is what, um, um, oh, and then, right, sorry, Rashi translates, this is on the, the beginning of the next page, right, Rashi translates, Rashi is a, a commentator from um, the 1100s, Rashi says, the Mephaisule, right, that he tries to appease him, he requests what, this is a word that we almost always translate as forgiveness, that he requests forgiveness. Um, and, um, but, but the, the upshot of the Gemara, which is where the English kind of says this out in the, the Quran translation just make, makes this explicit in the way that the Gemara itself does it, is that, okay, but if the person didn't request forgiveness, then actually there's still a place for vengeance and actually there's still a place for holding a grudge because what's at stake here? What's at stake for the Torah scholar? What's at stake for the Torah scholar is the Torah itself, right? So if there is, an insult to the Torah, you can't just let that go because the Torah is important and we can't just be like, oh, blah, da, da, like I should be so nice and let the Torah get trampled on. No, of course not. We have something to defend here. And when we're defending something, we can't be lax about it, right? We're, we're, we're fighting on behalf of the Torah. Um, and so what that means is yes, if someone comes and says, oh, I insulted the Torah or I insulted the Torah through insulting the Torah scholar, and I apologize for that, then of course we should allow ourselves to be appeased, we should accept the apology. But if not, then there's still this like debt hanging. And that's what we're, that's this concept that we're, that we're getting at here, this concept of, of, of there's a debt hanging and until there's an apology, that, apo that debt is not, um, is not relieved. Um, so that's, um, that's the, the Gemara and Yoma. And then Maimonides, Oh, Quinn, did you want to say anything before we move on to Maimonides? Okay. Um, and uh, um, right, so so we, if you're following in the handout, we just finished the Gemara and the Talmud and Yoma, and we have here like a, just a note for, for those of you following around, right? Like this reflects an extremely influential approach to forgiveness, which is right, right as Quinn prefaced from the beginning, forgiveness is weaving a moral debt incurred by wrongdoing, right? So someone insulted, let's say, the Torah or a Torah scholar, that debt hangs according to the Gemara, until a person comes and asks for forgiveness and forgiveness is then given. Otherwise that debt stands. And we see a very similar thing come up in um, Maimonides' Laws of Chula. And obviously having my mom here, I should say, I learned these first with her. So everything I'm about to say is hers. <laughs> um, okay, so here we go. So, and there's a lot of interesting things going on here that we're gonna, um, that we're gonna pick out. So in 
So teshuva, right, repentance, and Yom Kippur only work for sins that are between man and God. So if you eat a forbidden food, you engaged in forbidden sexual relationships, things like that. Sexual relations, the forbidden sexual relationships things, I think you actually have to like bracket. That's like a big conversation. Is that really just about man and God or could that actually be about people too? But my mom always brings that in as an example, but we're not gonna fall down a rabbit hole of discussing that. Um, but continues my mommy's of all um, and he brings a bunch of examples there. Um, you curse a colleague, you steal from him, things like that. Um, they're never forgiven for you. Until they're never forgiven, until you repay what you owe your colleague. And this is a different word for appeasement, yiratsehu. Um, so the last one was pius. This one is yiratsehu. Ritse is like the same word as ritsei. Um, Like they want it um, would be another way of kind of make, make them want to receive it from you, um, yiratsehu. Um, okay. So you have these like two different dynamics where you might've thought, okay, there's this like bad thing that I did in the world. And then Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur transpired and Yom Kippur is the like forgiver of all things. So the bad thing that happened in the world is now wiped clean. But the answer, but, but like that, the thing that my mom brings out, and this is something we're going to be discussing over the course of the, the rest of the series is like, no, that's actually not enough for interpersonal sins. That's not enough for interpersonal sins. It's not just like, oh, there's like this um, metaphysical like debt that was incurred. And then I did this like metaphysical thing that was like the Yom Kippur service or like the day of Yom Kippur or however it is that Yom Kippur works. And that's again, another conversation for another time. Um, and now it's like, wipes well, clean. No, like actually if it's against the person, you have to like go and do the thing with the person. And if it's with God, then you have to do repentance vis-a-vis God. So it's not just that like Yom Kippur happens and that the day is wiped clean. There's at least Yom Kippur and Teshuva vis-a-vis God. Okay, and so then just to continue on that like interpersonal note, the Rambam, my body continues, so let's say I stole from somebody and I returned the money that I owed that person, still, I still need to appease that person and I still need to ask that person for forgiveness. It's not just that like, oh, there was a loss of money and now that money has been regained, so the debt has been fulfilled. No, there's like something much more complicated going on here. There's still this like emotional um, piece of the equation that my debt isn't forgiven to that person until um, until they forgive me. Um, it's not just, even though I like, in like literal, like physical terms, I have repaid the debt I owed them. If let's say I stole $5 from Quinn and now I have repaid him $5, it's not enough. There's like something more added into the equation. There's like a moral hunk of the of the equation now that cannot be balanced out until um, I've asked forgiveness from Quinn and Quinn has forgiven me. Um, and then, um, right? And then and then he goes on to say that there's actually even more to it, right? So if the person who I wronged, I wronged Quinn, and Quinn says. Um, I don't want to forgive you, Leah, for stealing $5 from me. 
Right, so you bring a row of three friends, and we all the, all those people come with me, and we all request forgiveness from Quinn together. Right, so if um, it, it, I do that three times. And if after the third time that that happens, if Quinn does not forgive me, then I can actually leave him. And this is like a really interesting turn that my mom needs here takes. The person who refuses to grant forgiveness is the one considered the sinner. So all of a sudden, there was a monet, let's say there was a monetary debt. Oh, and I owe Quinn $5. I paid him those $5. There's still this like, moral element remaining but i have like fulfilled my side and more of that moral element and then there's like this tilt that now because i've gone so above and beyond on my like moral piece of the equation it actually became imbalanced in the quinn direction and now quinn like owes me because he refused to do his moral part and accept my um, apology and forgive me um so that actually turns the forgiveness into this like moral act um it's not just like a it's not actually all on the apologizer there's actually a piece of the equation that actually lands on the, the wronged party um at, at a certain at least at a, after a certain number of like checks have been fulfilled and we saw this in the Talmud too that at a certain point right that's the statement of Rava and and um and the bright also that like we want people to be forgiving and that once someone right that the last sentence in the Gemara is like once someone has apologize, then you actually you really want to be the person who forgives them, um, because then God will forgive you also. Um, so there, there's kind of like a, an, an obligation on the forgiver at a certain point here. That's a very, very interesting type of obligation. Um, and then we'll just round out this last paragraph and I'll turn it back over to Quinn. Um, right? A person shouldn't be cruel or refuse to be appeased, refuse to forgive. Rather, he should be easily pacified, hard to anger. And the minute a person who is wronged has asked, um, a minute a person um, as for forgiveness, you should forgive him immediately with a complete heart and a willing spirit. Even if you really wronged him, you should still not seek revenge or bear a grudge, but rather um, be, be kind of immediately, immediately forgiving. Quinn, do you want to open it up for a discussion now, or do you want to um, move on to your next piece and then open it up? Maybe let's move on to the next piece and then open it up for discussion after sort of that view gets put on the table. Okay, super. So, so one thing that um, philosophers are supposed to do is like, you know, be puzzled by things that are otherwise obvious. And so I'm gonna try to ask some questions for things that might've seemed obvious to try to like get us puzzled about it. Um, and then try to introduce a kind of picture that, that resolves this puzzle. So one question you might have about both of these texts is, why should you be hard to anger, but easily pacified? So like, if I'm supposed to be easily pacified, one sort of natural explanation is because, well, anger isn't the kind of thing I should have, or vengeance isn't the sort of thing that I should do, but that's not the picture. The picture seems to be one that sort of sees a place for anger and for vengeance, and like sees it as crucial that you be pacified when appropriate. So why would that be? 
how can we have how can we sort of have our cake and eat it too? A second question that you might have in sort of response to this is why kind of tied to this, why am I the person from whom Leia stole? Why am I obligated to forgive her if she apologizes? So if she does the appeasing, why is it a sin for me not to forgive? That's a kind of weird thing or something to be puzzled by. The third is why think that, again, sort of keeping with this example of theft, so Leia steals $5 from me, why isn't it enough for her to just give me the $5 back? Why, does, why is more owed? Why is this ritual um, important? Why is appeasement necessary? And then the last bit is why think that Leia has to get forgiveness from me? So, I mean, suppose Leia gives me the $5 back and sort of gets right by her relationship with God. Why is there something else that she needs to do to me or for me or with me? Why are both, why are sort of both pieces of this necessary? So what I wanna do is introduce a picture um, from sort of contemporary English speaking philosophy um, that is really drawn from one of my teachers who, whose first anniversary of her passing is, is coming up and um, absolutely wonderful philosopher named, named Judy Thompson. And she has a picture um, that I think will make sense of some of the potentially puzzling features of forgiveness. And so it might first seem like, you know, why are we talking about this kind of weird stuff? And I promise it'll, it'll come back together. So one of the things that Judy thinks is that, and I'm gonna here start using my whiteboard because I'm a little old fashioned. So the key claim that Judy defends in this very famous book called The Realm of Rights is that we together occupy a series of bipolar, which is to say something with two parts or two poles, bipolar relations, that human beings are bound together by rights. And rights, rights is, you know, the word right is something that we often hear in the law, like a right to free speech. And sometimes I think in some of these contexts, it might seem weird to use a word like right. Um, but I want to sort of let's put some of the baggage that we have with the word right to the side and kind of just sort of take it, take her at face value for what she means by it. What she means is that much of our lives, morally speaking, can be understood as in some way connecting, uh, that there's some kind of connection between two people. So say we're going to use this example of, you know, Leia stole from me. So there's Leia, there's Quinn, so short hair. Some longer hair, but my bad, my bad drawings. Okay, so she owes. So she owes me some money back. So there's this idea for there to be a right is to say that there's some kind of connection between me and Leia of like giving me five dollars back. She owes me five dollars. Another way of saying that is I have a right to $5 from her. And the sort of technical language that Judy uses in the book, which sounds kind of strange, but it's how philosophers often put it. I have a right against Leia that she give me the $5. And by against, that's not necessarily antagonistic. It just means sort of with respect to Leia, I have this right. And likewise, with respect to me, Leia has an obligation of giving me $5. Now, sometimes rights, obligations, there are these you know, things like money where it kind of makes sense, but 
one of uh, Judy's key claims is that our life is structured by these things, even in places where you might not have thought of. So let's forget the, my bad hair drawings for a second. Like what do I, in a moment like this, what kinds, of, what kinds of rights relations do I stand into you all? Well, here's one sort of like really basic one. You all are here, you're giving, you're giving me your time and I owe you something, namely that I prepared for class, like that I did something to like make this a worthwhile experience for you. Putting it in sort of the other way around, you have a right against me, again, that might sound overly legalistic, but the idea is here, you have a right against me that I'd be prepared. And so too, do you have a right against Leia? And I have all kinds of rights against you too. So it might be that sort of in the other direction, we have another right, which is something like, a right not to be interrupted. Like you owe it to me not to just unmute yourself and start talking. Now, why think of things in sort of in this way? Well, there are a few things that are supposed to come out of this picture. So one is the idea that we can understand wrongdoing as a violation of these things that bind us together. There are many, many, many sort of bindings that we have vis-a-vis -vis one another. This is just, you know, sort of one really basic example, but also that we'd be kind to one another Perhaps that like, you know, maybe I have a right against you that like, if you see me all of a sudden have a heart attack, you owe it to me to like call 911 or at least one of you does. So there are lots of these kinds of relations that we stand into one another. And the basic idea is that to wrong another person is to sort of, to violate this connection. Now, what follows? from one of these connections being broken or shattered or not honored. Well, one of the key claims that Judy has is that there are all of these, what we might think of as subsidiary rights, or sometimes it's called moral residue, that comes in the wake of some kind of shattering of a right or some kind of violation of the connections that we stand into one another. So suppose we have something like, this one that we that I have as a kind of crude example. This right that you have against me that I prepare for class, that I've done some prep. So what happens if this is broken? Well, now I might owe you some kind of recompense. There are things that follow, there are new rights that emerge because this one was not honored. So one might be something like an explanation. Maybe I owe you also something like an apology. Maybe I owe you also something like a makeup session. But the idea is that these are also now can be understood as rights. And so another right that I might have is that, like a right not to have my money stolen. That's a right that I have against all of you. That's a right that you all have against me. So if Leah takes my money, 
there are going to be these subsidiary rights that emerge because that sort of core right was violated. So we return to that example. Um, I have a right not to have my money stolen. Now, if Leia were to violate that right, I get all kinds of sort of things in response. Again, I'm gonna get some kind of right to an apology, maybe some kind of right to an explanation and a right to my money back. So on this sort of picture, the key sort of the key thing is that we, we all stand in many of these relations to one another and these relations can are interlocked they're connected. Now one thing that's very special about rights is that we have a kind of power over them, we can make them go away, at least many of them, those rights that aren't inalienable rights. So I have this ability to, for instance, make the right that I have that you all not interrupt me go away by saying something like okay let's open it up for discussion. Again, that might sound really weird, like that I'm taking away a right, but this is just a sort of a way of conceiving of what's happening when I give permission. Likewise, you know, you might waive a right against trespass, say, by inviting me into your home. On this sort of picture of this way of thinking of it, we stand in this kind of moral relation. I'm not allowed to just walk into your house, but you can make, you can sort of take that away by saying it's okay to come in or like, you know, you're welcome to my home. So what is on this kind of picture, what's happening when we forgive? So let's, let's go to this example of Leia stealing my money. So I have a right to my money. I have a right not to have it stolen. Leia takes it from me. Now here's this thing that I can do. I have these, I have like basically these two new rights. A right to get my money back. You might think actually in some ways of that's just the original right. And a right to some kind of apology, maybe some explanation, especially given that she's my friend. Now here's something I can do. I can say, you know what, Leah, keep the money, I forgive you. On this sort of picture, what is happening in that moment is I'm doing this thing that we do all the time, getting rid of a right, waving a right. What I am, when I, when I, if I forgive Leah for stealing my money, I'm waiving the rights that I have, these kind of, these kind of, um, these rights to some kind of recompense. I can waive them. I can just make them go away. I can say, Leah, you know what? It's fine. You don't owe me the money. And maybe as long as you've apologized at least a little bit, you don't know, you don't owe me any more apology. You don't owe me any more explanation. I can cancel that debt. So this is one of, and I think it's sort of one of the most influential ways of thinking about forgiveness. Sort of something has gone wrong. And in light of that wrongdoing, there's this debt that's owed. What is the debt? It's one of these subsidiary rights that emerges in the wake of wrongdoing. And to forgive is to cancel a debt. So on this kind of picture, why is it the case that like 
you know, and if Leia steals from me, that it's, it's not enough that she just give me the money back. Well, because there are more sort of debts that have been incurred. It's not just the $5, it's something more like owing an explanation, owing an apology. That's kind of built into the original right that I had. In the same way that if I just like totally blew off this class and was a jerk, it wouldn't just be that I owed you a makeup class. <laughs> There'd be a lot more that I might owe. And why is this the sort of thing that it would be sort of a sin for me as the forgiver not to, to, to forgive? Well, if Leia has paid this debt, if she's made good on those rights, then for me to sort of continue to press my claim would be as absurd, sort of like as inappropriate as if I loaned Leia $5 and she paid me back and I said, you still owe me another $5. The debt's been paid. So debts are the sort of things that can be paid back and they're the sorts of things that can be waived. And so in a picture where, you know, if we're thinking not just about something like money, but something like vengeance, this sort of picture would say, vengeance is just another one of these kind of subsidiary rights that emerges in the wake of wrongdoing. So suppose I've been insulted. I have a kind of a right against this person to get my due. I'm now entitled to do things that I wouldn't otherwise be entitled to do, to take some kind of vengeance. Now, the shape that that vengeance might take will depend on what kind of wrong it was. Um, there are sort of vengeance that might be appropriate or inappropriate, but there's some kind of retributive action that I'm now entitled to, that I have a right to, that there's this sort of debt that I'm owed. And I can waive that debt. And likewise, that debt can be paid by, by way of apology and by doing whatever it takes to sort of to make up for the wrong. Now, there's this last element, I think, that's really crucial in this picture, which is that All of these rights, they're the sort of philosophical word for it is bipolar. They have sort of two poles. Rights are things that link two, two people. Sometimes there can be sort of collections that have more than two people in them. But sort of the core case is that I owe it to Leia that blah. I owe it to you, not sort of you, just you collectively, but I owe it to each of you, given that you're here to do right by this class. And each of you owes it to me. Rights bind people in a way that's sort of directional. It's sort of, it, they link us. And so this is, I think, part of, this is at least a kind of picture that makes sense of why something like Yom Kippur isn't enough to just like wave the moral guilt that Leah would have if she stole my money. Because the right, that was violated as a right between me and Leia, in addition to violating a commandment that God has issued. And so in as much as Leia needs to sort of make good on the rights that were violated, she needs to not only sort of um, respect the fact that a, a commandment of God was violated, but also a connection between the two of us. So there's sort of, in the case of wrongdoing, there's sort of two relevant connections here. The wrongdoer bears a connection to an interpersonal wrongdoing, the person that has been wronged, and a commander whose command was violated. 
And I think thinking of things in terms of these, of, of the moral obligations we stand in as connections between us can make sense of that. Um, so I want to, if it's all right with you, Leah, just like pause to take questions before we go on to um, the next text, because that was like a lot of philosophy and um, all of which was probably un unfamiliar, or at least new. Um, so why don't you call on people, yeah. Okay, um, so let's start with uh, Matthew. Um, this may be more of a curiosity question, but in the interest of figuring out how these accounts link together, um, was Thompson a, a theist uh, or an atheist? Did she believe that these rights have like a guarantor or like an issuer or like a wellspring from which they originate? Um, it seems like that is sort of an important thing to think about when sort of linking sort of non-theological ethics to theological ethics. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, I don't, I don't know. I think that I, I don't, so I don't want to guess, um, but certainly her, her philosophy is not, her philosophy is wholly secular. Like the sort of the picture she has is one that doesn't depend on the existence of God. But as she thinks of rights, she wants to be a pluralist about where they come from. So different rights come from different places. So the right that I have, like with respect to my money, like that's not, that doesn't like come from anything sort of mysterious. That just comes from the law. Like the law has established property rights, like money came from the US government. And so the US government did some things, they passed some laws that then create a structure that binds each of us. And you might think some of these rights don't come from the government, they come from God or they just come from nothing. They're just there in virtue of being human beings. Um, but this picture sort of allows these things that bind us together to come from all kinds of different places. And so you might have a view on which they all come from God or some of them come from God and some of them come from the law and some of them come from, from nothing, they're just fundamental. But wherever they come from, there's a further thing, which is who they bind. So when I, if, if Leah steals my money, it's not that she's just wronged the government, sort of the law came from the government, but she wronged me. She sort of, the rights violation was mine. Excellent question. Um, Mona. So um, thank you for a very thoughtful teaching so far. Um, it, it's an honor to be with you. I, uh, Leah, you know, we, we go, our families go way back. Um, so I, I just wanted to add a psychological perspective and a Buberian perspective to the rights language to talk about relational responsibility, hmm. which I think is really key to the process of forgiveness. <clears throat> there's a tremendous amount, of, there's a, a very large literature in psychology on forgiveness and most of it is influenced by Christian um, theology. And the idea is that the uh, person who was wronged, the obligation is on them to do the forgiveness and it's unilateral whether or not there's what we would call teshuva, whether there's any interpersonal process because um, Christ forgave, so we should forgive. Mm -hmm. um, that is, I think, a um, it works for, for Christians, which is great. I think it's a very problematic psychological process and it's definitely not the Jewish process. I wanna just mention a wonderful book by Janice Spring called, How Can I Forgive You? The Courage to Forgive, The Freedom Not To. And she presents more of a Jewish perspective, which is that, that genuine forgiveness is really this teshuva process that Maimonides describes, right? That Rambam describes, which is 
I, I do my, I do, first of all, and we didn't go into all of the prep work for, for, the, for the person who's asking for forgiveness, right? You go to therapy, you do your work, right? You transform yourself. You're no longer the same person. You make amends, you feel remorse. There's a whole lot of personal work there that's going on and interpersonal work. So ideally that's the process of teshuva that I think Rambam is talking about. And I think ultimately that's the most satisfying kind of work between people. But what do you do if the offender doesn't come to you to, to, to make amends? And then she has a whole, I won't go into her whole thing, but it's a really interesting layout of options, right? Because what the literature has shown is that holding a stance of unforgiveness, holding on to the revenge and, and, and the rabbis are sort of, in the Talmud are sort of recommending this, do it quietly, you know, some of them are. Um, it kills you literally. It like, you know, the anger, the chronic anger is is ultimately what gives you know many people a heart attack. So, uh, and chronic inflammation and all the other bad stuff. So, holding on to anger is really not a, a good idea for the person's health. But I, I also want to just mention Martin Buber talked about how when we hurt another person, when we injure the world order, we need to repair the world order. And if we can repair at the place where we injured it, great. <clears throat> if that person isn't available or has died or whatever, then we do it in some other way. But there's a sense of obligation and co-responsibility for the world that I think represents Buber's ideas. And there's a lot of work now in intergenerational family therapy and also in, in relational psychology about relational responsibility, relational ethics, which I just want to throw into this conversation. What do we owe our dialogue partners, our children, our parents, our friends, our earth, <laughs> each other? We, we, this is not to get too political here, but this is very much a live issue for us right now in our, in our world. So I don't think it's only about rights, although rights are important and the injury of rights, but it's also about responsibility. And I just want to add that language in, which is much more relational. Um, that the research shows that we are deeply interdependent relational creatures and that our well-being is intertwined with the well-being of others on this planet, but certainly closer to home as well. So when we injure someone, we're injuring the whole system. So I just wanted to, it's a lot I, I, I threw out there. Oh, no, you're giving away our next two classes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I can just say, like, I think the way that I would want to sort of hold a space for this, this thought is, is, so I think we should set aside the question of whether what I just put on the board is anything like what is the whole of what Maimonides was saying. Surely it's not. But here's a picture. And I think that both elements that, that you've just raised are not present in this picture and might make you think we have not found the sort of heart of forgiveness. If, like I never mentioned anger. Nowhere in the notion of forgiving a debt was getting rid of an emotion like anger or letting go of an emotion like anger. And that's a sort of the idea, holding some space for the emotional process of forgiveness is there, there's one sort of strand in philosophical thought that says, no, 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 that's just something else. We don't care about that. Forgiveness is this debt stuff. And there are other people who we're gonna look at next week who are like, no, 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 the emotional stuff is where it's all at. You gotta have the, emo you know, that, that piece is, is necessary. And this other element you mentioned about sort of putting the world back together, that's also really not here. And I think that th this picture can be extended in ways that make sense of that, but sort of those extensions will, like Leah said, will I think be, be exploring in the next two, two sessions. Um, but I think, yeah, that is perfect tee up for, for where, what I, what I think would be natural to feel is missing from this picture 
Like where, where was all this other stuff that seems so important about repair, about putting things back together, about anger? Um, yeah, excellent. And maybe for the sake of time, Joy, I, we can apologize. I'm happy to stay after and I'd love to hear what you had to say, but maybe we should move on to the next. That, that's okay, because I think I think Mona um, touched on what I was asking. I was just concerned about if there's a debt that Leah owes you, and then you simply forgive her, so the whole situation is over. My feeling is that you owe her something. You owe her an explanation as to why it made you feel angry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that there's, yeah, that there's something that needs to happen between us that's not just like, Okay, I got rid of this thing, debt, debt forgiven, all done. There's more, there's more to the process. There's more to be done. Right. But I'm wondering whether we should do the, the next source of the Talmud or actually skip to the Exodus source. I think we should largely skip. I, let me just say one quick thing that I had wanted to use this text to, to bring out. Um, sure. So one, I think, element and again, we, we might already be so unhappy with this picture that we're ready to move on to something a little more rich that has, has more in it. But one thing that I think we can carry with us to other perspectives on forgiveness is when we're thinking about why we should forgive, this, this sort of picture suggests um, a, few, a few answers to why forgive. One answer to the question why forgive is because the debt is paid. Now, sort of Mona raised this really important thing. Well, maybe one reason that I might want to forgive Leah is because it's going to eat me up inside if I stay angry at her. Maybe another reason to forgive Leah is because I don't want this relationship between us to be destroyed. We got to start putting things back together. Let's hold off on those, on those thoughts. One reason to forgive, the sort of simple reason that emerges on this picture is because sort of Leah paid her debt and paid debts need to be recognized as paid. Another kind of thing that I think emerges from this is the importance of vengeance that uh, like I was at least thinking we can really find, especially in, in the Talmud passage, is that like when someone has wronged you, there's an importance to take, you know, the language of vengeance or of retribution is in part appropriate because you need to stand up for some value that's been threatened. So another reason to forgive on this sort of picture is because the threat is gone. Like, why is it so significant that, why is something like apology significant? Well, in part, it seems like what happens if Leah apologizes or if she gathers three friends and makes appeasement three times is that she has made clear that like, she is not that kind of person, that she's not gonna do that again, that she acknowledges that there's a kind of mutual acknowledgement that that was wrong. And so the threat that she poses to like my integrity or my value as a person who has rights is withdrawn. And so it's no longer sort of as necessary for me to be standing up for myself. Um, so th those were just, I think, two, two sort of elements of this picture where we're thinking of like, what, why, why, why go in for this process? Well, either because the debt's been paid or because the threat that justified sort of taking a stand has been, has been um, withdrawn. It's no longer, it's no longer a worry. Um, and the, the question that I wanted to sort of end us with is what's missing from a picture of forgiveness. So Mona, um, I think has articulated, and Joy both, articulated some of the elements that sort of we haven't yet touched on that seem like important pieces. But um, we had this passage that we thought sort of brought out a, a lot of the elements that this, this picture at least alone, at least unsupplemented, um, can't really illuminate or explain. 
So uh, the text we're going to look at is a text that's very, very central to this time of year. Um, and it is a time when um, Moses goes to God and says, like, you have to forgive the people. And God does forgive the people. Um, and that is after the, after the sin of the golden calf. So we're in Exodus 32. Um, and Moses is like still up on the mountain. When scene opens, we're on page five, for those of you who follow along on the handout, scene opens, uh, Moses is still up on the mountain and God says to Moshe, hurry down, because the people who you brought out of Egypt have 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 like destroyed themselves, have acted repulsively, um, have, have debased themselves. Um, they They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I've told them, um, and they made for themselves a molten calf. They bowed to it, they sacrificed to it, and they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Um, and so then, so that's like um, statement number one of God, recorded statement number one of God to Moses, recorded statement number two, I've seen that this is a stiff-necked people, I've seen this people and they are a stiff-necked people, now says God, let me be, and my anger will blaze forth against them and I will destroy them, says God, and I have a solution already. Moses, I'll make out of you a replacement new nation. Um, and to any reader of the Bible knows, like, this is uh, God's, like, go-to solution to things, right? Imagine Noah. Um, oh, people are really bad in the time of Noah. God says, oh, Noah, like, you're okay. I'll make a whole new world out of you, right? This is God's, like, go-to move. Um, and Moses is like, no, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> Um, and, and uses all kinds of like logical reasoning. What are people going to say about you? Are you really such a great God? If you just like destroy your people, you took them out of Egypt and then you just destroyed them. Like that's a terrible thing to do. Um, and Moses says, right, turn from your blazing anger. Renounce the plan to punish your people. Um, and that's, and, and then, um, Moses says, you don't remember our ancestors who you loved so much, right? This is all this like emotional, emotional appeal because the problem is an emotional one, right? God says, let my anger blaze forth and I will destroy all of them. And Moses says, hold your anger in check. Please hold your anger in check. Please shuv, right? That's the same language as teshuva almost. Like it's Moses trying to do teshuva on behalf of the people a little bit. He's not really in a position to do that, obviously, because he's not the sinner, but but saying to God, like God, you have to you have to do tshuva, you have to turn, turn your anger, um, release your anger, be appeased in your anger, and that's ultimately what happens. The Lord renounced the punishment he had planned to bring upon his people. But if you think about this in terms of if you think about this story um, and God's turning at the end, God's renouncing the punishment. Um, like, is that forgiveness? Does that in any way map onto what we had just discussed? 
Um, and yet, like the Jewish tradition uses this as uh, as like a, a paradigm number one of God forgiving God forgiving the people. Like this is when we in our our liturgy uses this text over and over and over again as an example of God God granting atonement and forgiveness. Um, but like this does not map on at all to any of the um, to any of the the kind of rights language that um, Quinn was just. Quinn was just laying out and um, it really doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense at all unless we start to add in some of the emotional language that, that Mona was teeing us up for. And that's, um, and that's kind of where we're going in, in, in next week and the week after. And if I can just say one thing about sort of part of why it's sort of so puzzling or it doesn't, wouldn't make sense is I can waive a debt against Leia, but like, that's not how emotions work. So like, I can very easily just say, you don't owe me five bucks. You know, if only it were so easy to just say, I'm no longer mad at you and have that be that be it. But that's not how anger works, right? Anger is not the kind of thing that we just wave in the manner of a rights of a, of a rights waiver or a debt waiver. And so if we want to find a place for anger and the renunciation or the letting go of anger as some key part, maybe the, the main part, the heart of forgiveness, like to think that the heart of forgiveness is in some way about the heart and not about the things that are, not just the things that are done or the things that are owed, then we're gonna need something something more than just the picture that we thought of today. Yeah, and so that goes to what Matt just put, Matthew just put into the chat. To me, the Exodus 32 passage looks almost like what we had labeled condoning earlier, which that was the, the case of like the, oh, my mother-in-law is so offensive, but I'm just gonna like ignore it or like put it in the corner and not like engage. But um, what I would say to that is that um, that's, I don't think that's really what God, what Moses is requesting. Like he's not requesting like God just move past it. Um, he's requesting like hold in your anger because in your anger, God, you're about to, you're about to destroy an entire nation of people. Um, he, he's just requesting like a, like a lowering of the like anger. I'm not saying this very prettily, but like he's kind of requesting like a dialing it down, but not a like full on ignore. It's sort of like almost like the way I think about it is like Moses is requesting like an injustice maybe, like that God's anger is actually potentially what the people deserve. And Moses is saying, okay, but like the repercussions of them getting what they deserve are too severe. And that can't, like the like moral equation here can't go through, um, part one. And then part two is what Quinn just said of like, also that's not how anger works. I think we're happy to stick around for, right. Joy says, change the amount from $5 to $50,000. Yeah, totally. Right, I, I, think, I think Joy, the point you're making also, like we should have done that from the, from the beginning, like raising the stakes, yeah. Uh, raising the stakes in the whole case from the, from the beginning. Definitely, definitely the, the, the emotions would be higher with the yeah. debt. That's a very fair thing. Stacy said, isn't Moses asking, asking Hashem, asking God to dial it down on behalf of the forefathers? That's one of the arguments. 
Um, and the other argument is that right? Let not the Egyptians say, right? God, it's going to be embarrassing for you. Let not the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he delivered them only to kill them off in the mountains and annihilate them from the face of the earth. So there's this two kind of argument, like an argument from love for the forefathers and an argument from like, God, you're going to be embarrassed. Um, both of which, I mean, there's a lot to be said about like, why those arguments? Are those the right arguments? Should Moses said something better? Um, is that the best you got, Moses? I don't know, right? Um, and then, right, Stacy is saying, right, it's really about mending our relationship with God. Good, hold that. Um, and that's exactly what we're gonna what we're gonna be driving at. Um, Mona had labored that had labeled that like a Buberian kind mm -hmm. of uh, uh, kind of read on. Yeah, something about I think this will this will be the theme of the of the third session is like the idea that forgiveness is about repairing a relationship. It's about restoring. It's about putting something back together, or if something wasn't there in the first place, building something that needed to be there um, that that is under threat from wrongdoing. Um, and so my my hope is that sort of not that you leave today is thinking like oh yeah forgiveness is just waiving a debt, but that there's a, there might be something in this picture that's attractive. I think one thing that I do want to sort of suggest is, is attractive about this, this thought, even if we think it's a little empty, if it, that's, it's not capturing enough, is this idea that wrongdoing is something that happens between people and that we need to sort of pay attention to the kind of moral relations that we stand in um, and that forgiveness is it's something about, there's this deeply essential nature of forgiveness, which is that it's directed towards a person and from a person. It's not just sort of about a wrong, a wrong deed. Any more questions, uh, anyone? Feel free to unmute and just go ahead and verbally ask them if you do have a question. Okay, so thank you so much, everyone. Uh, thank you, Professor White and Ravani Zarna for this first class in this series. I'm really looking forward to uh, next Monday at 8 p.m. Uh, for continuing this. And thank you again, everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live and on Facebook. We will be live again tomorrow, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. with a class on forgiveness and atonement in Jewish tradition, philological and philosophical perspectives with Rabbi Zutkir. In addition, you can always find uh, out more information about class offerings as well, as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes, or you can watch classes live on our website at www.drisha.org slash live. We hope to see everyone again soon at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha and Laila Tov. <laughs> Thank you all. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.